I was muted. It's my fault. I'd like to invite you to turn with us down to the book of Exodus. We're going to be looking at the 12th chapter, the first 20 verses. And the title of this sermon is just simply the Passover, which is likely the title in your own Bible. It's a very common title, and I think you'll find that that title is there with good reason. God always has a plan. It may not always feel like it. In fact, it may not feel like it to you this morning. I sympathize with you if that is the case. But nevertheless, God always had a plan, still has a plan, and will work redemption according to plan. That's important this morning. It's not just that God will work redemption according to plan, but also punishment from sin or for sin, we will have redemption or punishment. And God is working that all according to plan. Over three millennia ago in Egypt, in the events described in our text today, God was working his plan just as timely and precisely as he is now. God had been making distinctions between Israel and Egypt within the execution of the first nine plagues. That's been the content of the sermons for the last several weeks, those first nine plagues. Israel's livestock didn't die, and darkness didn't darken the part of Egypt that God's people were relegated to in Goshen. However, when it comes to the complete, memorable, encapsulating execution of the final plague, the tenth sign, get this, there is no difference between Israel and Egypt with regard to their guilt before a holy God. Israel had no merit in themselves to, the judge, to deserve being passed over from this judgment, while the Egyptians were passed through in judgment. For Israel had sinned with the pagan gods just the same as the Egyptians had, and Scripture tells us that they would again. Golden calf, anyone? And again, and again, and again. Scripture bears this out, and it does not shield us from the faith of our fathers or the sins of our fathers. Without faith, Israel would have died that day too. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the Bible helps us understand the Passover through New Covenant lenses. I think of one verse in Hebrews 11, Hebrews eleven twenty-eight, where it says of Moses, it interprets Moses as, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So it was by faith that he and thus they kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood as you're going to hear on the doorposts so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. The indication is, is that without faith that led to the action of sprinkling the doorpost with blood, then therefore the destroyer would have destroyed the firstborn of the Israelites just the same. Were it not for substitutionary blood sacrifice, we would not have the miracle of the Exodus the way that we know it. So the Lord's instruction to the congregation of people over three millennia ago, as recorded in our text today, instructs us on how God makes His people by faith in a specific sacrifice at a specific time 
to be remembered always. So to follow the sermon today, God makes his people by faith in a specific sacrifice, verses 1 to 6, in a spe- at a specific time, verses 7 through 13, to be remembered always, verses 14 through 20. That simple sentence will help you track with an elongated sermon. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 20. Let's hear the word of the Lord now. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their fathers' houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the first day of this month of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto those who hear. 
So first what we see in this text, in the first six verses, is that God makes His people by faith in a specific sacrifice. The Lord met with Moses and Aaron and spoke to them in the land of Egypt prior to the Exodus, and He established a national calendar. He made them a budding people by saying, this is how you're going to reckon time. And He ensured that for this Passover, they would have a full moon on the calendar. And with that full moon, they would be able to see after the evening into the night in order to do their business. He gave very specific instructions around this seminal event for establishing them as God's people. And in establishing them as God's people, he takes them as his people with faith in a specific sacrifice. And this sacrifice was to be without blemish, was to be a congregational event, and it was supposed to be focused on blood. So let's consider those things underneath this first point. This sacrifice that is to be specific was to be without blemish. The context of the institution of the Passover as an annual event was set over and against the passing through with the tenth and final plague against the Egyptians, the plague of death of the firstborn. The Bible had already said that those who blessed the children of Abraham would be blessed, and those who cursed the children of Abraham would be cursed. We see this vividly in that the Pharaoh that blessed Joseph was therefore blessed, and the Pharaoh, the unnamed Pharaoh, that cursed Moses is therefore reaping curses. And that's what the plagues are. And so these nine plagues run through, and we come to this tenth plague, really the memorable plague, the death of the firstborn, It completes and is sort of shorthand for all the plagues, that tenth and final plague is. And what we learn in this plague is that an atoning sacrifice has to be offered in order for the people to not face the right wrath of God against them for their sin. And that's why this lamb is described as without blemish or blemish, blemishless, blemishless. If you want to make it, I don't think that's a word, but if you'd like it, you can call it blemishless. In chapter 12, verse 5, the text says, Your lamb shall be without blemish or blemishless. And people, we need to understand, now and then and always, are not morally neutral before God. There's a myth of neutrality in how we think about ourselves before God. And it is a myth that we must shatter in order to get to the heart of the gospel. We tend to think of ourselves as relatively righteous before God compared to other people. But God does not have this sliding scale of relative righteousness that we create in our own minds. There must be a specific sacrifice that is blemishless or without blemish. The blemishlessness of the sacrifice is what's being accentuated here, is being put an accent mark over it. A one-year-old lamb without blemish is to be chosen in this Passover, and it would always be tempting to offer a lamb with blemishes and protect the breeding of the better lambs and therefore the economic well-being of that particular household. Malachi 1 records one such instance of this infraction, and there were all sorts of other things that accompanied their, shall we say, Cain-like worship, where they didn't bring what they were supposed to bring. To worship, they didn't bring their best. And that's what God wants from us, is to bring our best in worship. He doesn't want us to bring our, our worst, or doesn't want us to hide our true intentions. He wants sincerity and truth when we come to worship. 
and Malachi 1 records the opposite of that, but they were still worshiping, at least the, the auspices of worshiping, and the prophet Malachi calls them out for the blemishes in their sheep. And there were all sorts of other things that accompanied this, this impoverished way of worshiping. Uh, things like divorce, which God describes there as a hatred thing that had plagued the community, uh, hoarding and, and destruction that came and accompanied faithless worship. So God demanded their best. At that time, He demands our best in this time. And in the beginning of Israel as a nation, they believed they had faith. And in that faith, they would bring forth their best and sacrifice it, trusting that God would take care of them. And that's kind of what we do when we bring the first fruits of our income to the Lord. It's part of what we do is we're saying we have faith that God will bless the rest of it. Now, this was not just a blemishless lamb, a specific lamb, but it was also a congregational event. They were to bring this lamb for a household or... Depending on the size of the households, they could combine households. Oh, one scholar said that the average household would have been thought of at about 10 people. And so if you only had three or four, you might combine with another household to get to 10. You would kill a lamb that was without blemish, but also a one-year-old lamb that was the proper size in accordance with what would be needed to feed that family and not have too much waste. And so it was a congregational event because sometimes households needed to be combined. And this instruction itself was given to all the congregation. If you look at your Bible at chapter 12, verse 3, the instruction was to be given to everybody, first to Moses and Aaron, but then via the elders to all the people we find in chapter 20, verse 21, which in Lord's providence should be next week's sermon text. And so it's delivered to all the congregation as a congregational event, and provision would be made for the believing sojourner and for the smaller house, our text says today, that there would be enough but not too much waste. Counting had to be done. They had to, they had to be prepared for this event. There were four days that elapsed from the 10th to the 14th day. There was time to identify this lamb, care for this lamb, based on the counting that would have taken place for the people. The specific sacrificial lamb was cared for by the families until that appointed time. Their faith, you might say it differently, should have been a personal faith for sure, but it was never a private faith. And that's a mistake that we make in, that's been well pointed out in our day-to-day. One of the problems with the so-called pietistic movement amongst believers in our 21st century and even prior context is uh, we can have a personal pietism that then carries us over to a private-only expressed faith. And I am thrilled if you have a personal faith that has been private. All that I'm intending to do with you today is to tell you that God expects your private faith to be practiced publicly. God outlines in His Word, cover to cover, that our private faith is not to stay private. It is a personal faith, but it is not a private faith. It is a personal faith that is made public in our example when we gather on the Lord's Day, when we operate as the covenant people of God. And so that is a mistake that we've made. If you're making that mistake in your thinking, I've been there. I'm not taking just extra shots at you. What I want to do is weight your faith in the truth of the Word of God and say that whether or not you realize it and whether or not it makes you comfortable, the public witness of the faith together does things for you and with you that you would not know unless you just simply obey God based on the clear teaching of his word. Because I can tell you right now, you rascals, I wouldn't be here if God didn't tell me to. Because you people are frustrating. 
and I'm frustrating. And the reality is this is God's plan to pull us out of hiding and make us known. And you're going to see that as the story line of the text goes on. So this is a, 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 a people being made by faith in a specific sacrifice that's without blemish, it's congregational, and it's based on blood, which is nasty. But let's make this very clear. This was a bloodletting affair as much as it was a communal affair. They were all responsible for the bloodletting. It was for their sins. Look at chapter 12, verse 6. It says in chapter 12, verse 6, the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill their lambs at twilight. The whole assembly of the congregation. Thus making for a pretty late night meal. Something's being conveyed with this whole assembly of the congregation killing their lambs at twilight. Bobby Jameson said it like this, and he's giving reasons for preaching Exodus. He said, the Exodus is the definitive paradigm of redemption in the whole Old Testament. Later events like entry into and conquest of the land come back and recapitulate this event. The Psalms celebrate and reflect on this event. The prophets predict a new exodus patterned after it in Isaiah 40, for one example, verses 1 to 11. Crucial New Testament texts like, use terms like redemption, deriving their meaning from the exodus, and in no small part, particularly from the, from the Passover. When God rescued his people at, precise, at the precisely calculated cost of one lamb per household. So God's entire plan of salvation is Exodus-shaped. The whole of Scripture is Exodus-shaped. To recap our sermon so far, there was preparation for the exercise of their faith in worship. They were preparing a, by choosing a, a perfect lamb and being congregationally minded and aware that without the shedding of blood, there would be no redemption for sin. And, and so our faith guides us to prepare for worship in this way. Number two. God makes his people by faith in a specific sacrifice at a specific time. So that's what we're adding to the second point. That it's not simply a specific sacrifice, but it's happening at a specific appointed time. And we'll see here that there is a time for this sacrifice. There's no time to waste in offering the sacrifice. And that judgment is implied in the time of this sacrifice. So it's worth considering this timing further. Think of the time of the sacrifice, specific time. They had timing of days with the lamb, but then they had the 14th day that the lamb was sacrificed. So they chose it on the 10th day, sacrificed it on the 14th day. They were to slaughter or to slay the lamb as a symbol of substitute sacrifice for sins, because sins are real. Our indifference towards sin is not, un, is not God-honoring today any more than their indifference towards sin was God-honoring then. In fact, it's dishonoring to God to live functionally indifferent toward our sin. Perhaps our visceral reaction, our disdain toward blood sacrifice that is not God-honoring is rooted in our indifference toward the heinousness of sin. God laid out His perfect plan A from the foundations of the world to subject the world to futility and show His love in His Son, saving us from it. The ongoing futility of the world that we live in is a reminder and a warning for us to not be indifferent toward the general sin that led to this world being filled with futility, pain, suffering, problems, anxieties. It is a reminder for us to not stay immersed in things like murmurings and bitterness and abject privateness and hidden sins 
and sins of communication like grumbling that God sees as less than what he wants for us and that we engage in when we are not reminding ourselves together as well as individually and in our homes that God is sovereign in his purposes even when the futility of the world rages around us. In times of our pain, God is still sovereign. The time of the sacrifice is a reminder that the fruition of your salvation will come at a specific time. I was thinking about this sermon, and I was listening to a sermon that was preached by John Piper at Capitol Hill Baptist Church last Sunday, and he's an old man now, and he was doing a thing that he's probably done a hundred times over the course of his his preaching ministry and talking about suffering and the sovereignty of God. And I would commend that sermon to you because it's a brilliant sermon for anybody that's thinking about these things. Just last Sunday, it's easy to get online. But I want you to know what I just said about the futility of the world and how you only make sense out of it by the sovereignty of God. I want you to know that is something that that he has impressed through his preaching and that that's the most recent place that I heard it. And I wanted to share it with you today and give credit where credit is due. Because the reality is, without the time of sacrifice, the futility of the world would swallow us up and we would not have a purpose to our pain and suffering. The time of the sacrifice is specific and it would be specific in the consummation of the Passover. There would be no time to waste in their practices for appreciation and engaging in the sacrifice. If they wasted time, there'd be no blood on the doorpost. If there was no blood on the doorpost, they would be destroyed by the destroying angel. I love babies. I really do. Don't you? I love babies. It's not that I'm incapable of preaching through a baby crying. I just thought it was a good opportunity to say I love babies. I love all our kids in the church. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't forbid them. Will you do well with you also? Like that, I think. There was no time to waste in this Passover event when the time came for the preparations to become reality. And when the specific time came for the Passover, the immediacy is described in our text today using words like haste. You're supposed to eat it in haste. And they ate that precise meal with a version of what we might consider sort of like ancient fast food in terms of the preparation. Not necessarily in terms of the health content, but in terms of the preparation with the lamb and the herbs and the bread being on the menu. The lamb was to be roasted, not boiled. That was for the sake of time, making time. Herbs were to be bitter. I suppose the contrast would be sweet with these condiments. And bread was to be unleavened, not leavened. Why? It symbolizes the speediness of which they were to leave Egypt in God's deliverance. The speediness of which they were to cling to salvation and turn from the oppression and the tyranny that they had known in Egypt and to turn from whatever things they liked about that world order too. The blood on the door was a sign that marked God's people from not God's people. Otherwise, Israel's firstborn son would die too, a point we've already made three or four times in this sermon. For no one is without sin. The speed of this event was to show that they were ready to prior and precisely exercising their faith now, right down to their dress code. Waist with a belt on, feet with the sandals on, hand with the staff in it. There was a, a reenactment in ensuing generations that would come from this first event. 
They were ready to march out. They were, uh, to use a New Testament corollary, they were like the brides with wicks trimmed on their lamps waiting on the groom. They were readied. And we're to be ready. We're to be ready for the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord. And the way that we get ready is by tending to these ordinary means of grace that God has given for us as people of faith, exercising a faith that is not only personal, but is communal. A faith that's not only mine, but not kept private and hidden under a bushel, but lit up as we gather together and figure out how to live as a body of Christ, as the body of Christ in a world that desperately needs to see functionality in the midst of its dysfunction and futility. There's no time to waste in the taking of this sacrifice, but at the same time, there was preparation that went into this sacrifice. And the time had come then, therefore, for judgment against those that were not trusting in the specific sacrifice at the specific time. Time for judgment came. It says in our, in our text here that nothing was to be left behind. Uh, the land was not their home. The Lord would now complete His judgment on the false Egyptian gods. If you look at verse 12, it says, I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And so he, as we've said before, is, is demonstrating mastery and destruction over all the pagan gods because he is the one true God of creation and the only offer of salvation. He would strike the land of Egypt, but the blood on the doorpost was to be a sign. And it says, and you just, the sign was to be verse 13, you got it on the screen. The blood shall be a sign, doesn't say for God, does it? It said the blood shall be a sign for you. Who needs the sign? God knows who the people are, right? What's the sign for? Well, it's an expression of faith. But the sign's for us. What would they have noted as they scurried off and they took off when they were cast out and told to leave by Pharaoh? Get out of here and bless me too. That's, that's next week, Lord willing. They would have noticed this sign on all the doors and the lentils. They would have noticed this sign that the bloody house doors were passed over and all the Egyptian doors were not. They would have noticed this. It would have made an indelible mark on their minds, and God intended through the memorial practice of this to leave an indelible mark on the minds of others as well. God makes his people by faith in a specific time for a specific sacrifice, but the second point, at a specific time. A time for the sacrifice, no time to waste in taking the sacrifice, judgment implied with the sacrifice. It's very, very important. They had a problem too, did the Israelites, with multi-gods in ensuing generations and, and not wanting to, to get rid of the gods. As one author said, they had a problem with multi-gods, but not with propitiation. The bigger the sacrifice they thought, the bigger the pleasing of the gods, plural. God fixed that with knowledge of himself to his people and used this memorial as a way to do it. But in our day, we tend to accept monotheism or one God, but we, at least confessionally, but we have a problem with blood in the sacrifice. But we can't have that problem, now can we? Because when we look at the New Testament, we look at 1 John and Romans and Hebrews, we find that propitiation or blood sacrifice for the propitiation of sins is clear to put it differently without the shedding of blood there is no propitiation of sins there is no atonement for sin so the new testament analog for passover the lord's supper speaks of propitiation every time 
and the language, or at least we speak of it every time, that's what we do here when we take the Lord's Supper, and the language, it is the Lord's Passover in verse 11, is repeated in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ is our Passover lamb. And that's so therefore is a theme, therefore, that we must carry forward in order to get this right. But I get a little bit ahead of myself in quoting 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to come back to that at the end of the sermon. Before we conclude our second point and go to our third point, I want to say this about this whole way of thinking about this specific sacrifice at a specific time. I'm going to try to put some, some light on it by stepping back and saying it differently. We have a men's study every month, and we have one on Saturday morning, and this, this very Saturday morning. If you haven't come yet, I would encourage you to do that. If you become lax in your attendance, I would encourage you to renew it this week. It's a very worthwhile study, and they feed you breakfast too. Uh, we're following a book that was edited by Richard Owen Roberts, and the book is titled Salvation in Full Color. And it is slow reading. It's usually only about 10 or 12 pages because it's an old sermon by an old head, usually an old Puritan preacher that's long since died and met the Lord, but it's got something weighty. And last month we studied the atonement in this book. And I want to quote the Sermon on the Atonement by Solomon Stoddard, who was a colonial pastor in America and the grandfather of Jonathan Edwards. And here's what he, what he says. It's what he counsels in the use of this doctrine of the atonement. There are some of you that are distressed for want of a pardon. Death is frightening to you, but you dare not trust in the blood of Christ as if there were little virtue in it. You hear the great commendations of it, but you don't believe them. You slight it as insufficient for the expiation, that is, the atonement or the make amends or the reparations for your very own sins. You don't believe that God has any great esteem of it. You think if you should trust in it, it would be a presumptuously thin, it would be presumptuous thin, that it would be a way to be cheated in your soul. Though you pray that you may be sprinkled with Christ's blood and profess the saving virtue of it, yet you do despise it. For it is not from the low opinion that you have of yourself that you are afraid, but from the low opinion that you have of Christ. You say you are a poor wretched sinner, that you have a bad heart and are extremely vile and run on very much in condemning yourself. You run on very much in condemning yourself as if you had a very humble sense of your own unworthiness. But this is not the thing that hinders your coming to Christ. For many persons have lower thoughts of themselves than you do. Yet do not venture upon, do yet do venture upon Christ. Notwithstanding your pretended humility, you have too high thoughts of yourself, and because of your fear, it is that you are not sensible of the mighty virtue that is in Christ. It is not because you see yourself a great sinner, but because you don't see Christ to be a great Savior. It is not because you have so deep a sense of your malady, but that you have so little a sense of the remedy. Men that are wretched are invited to Christ, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knows not that thou art the fire, that thou mayest be clothed, and the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesal that thou mayest see. Revelation 3, 17 and 18. He's trying to say in that is that the blood of Christ is sufficient for your salvation and don't trust in your own adequacy to the point of denying that sacrifice receive it with open arms with tears come to Christ he is the remedy folks with lower opinions of themselves than you 
have come to Christ. What a beautiful, beautiful sermon that we studied, and I'm sure the one that we studied this Saturday will be equally beautiful. Our faith guides us to be precise about our Savior and to celebrate that preciseness in our worship. And so, what we found so far is that God makes His people by faith in a specific sacrifice at a specific time, and finally, to be remembered always. That's our third and final point, to be remembered always. If you look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, you find the impetus for this always. This day shall be for you a memorial day. Now, not memorial day like we have to start the summer in our calendar, but a memorial day that would have taken place in uh, March and April on our Western calendar. In the Hebrew calendar, this would have been a start to the season, and they were to keep this feast to the Lord throughout generations forever. Keep it as a feast, a day that you shall have as a day of memorial or a day of remembrance always. Well, why was that? It was because the memorial would be needed so that future generations would know the truth of the Passover. And it was to remind those that already knew of the importance of this special sacrifice. The calendar was to establish these believers around this event, the Passover, and then the Feast of the, of the Unleavened Bread, these events, this, this sw- string of days. And it is no coincidence that Jesus' last supper was his Passover meal. All this blood was pointing to him. It was pointing to him as the something. And it was a lot of blood. I mean a lot of blood. It's estimated by the historian Josephus that in the first century that they would herd hundreds of thousands of sheep to Jerusalem for slaughter. Can you imagine the amount of blood? God wanted this calendar to create a content of reenactment for everyone. He wanted the calendar to have a teaching role so people could learn and could remember this message. The calendar would carry the message, not just the contents of the teaching. And this has an application for how we order our worship services. There is a gospel shape to our order of worship, from the call worship to the benediction, and we didn't invent that. We borrowed it from church history. In my opinion, got it from the Bible. Our order in how we conduct our affairs in our worship is to convey the gospel just the same as the content within the structure is to convey the gospel. Call to worship, praise the Creator, confess our sin, be reminded of the assurance of our pardon through the sacrifice, be instructed in this redemption through the sermon, offer prayers of petition and requests to our Lord with thanksgiving in our hearts, see and sing the gospel, and end with a promise that one day we will enter our Sabbath's rest forever. The calendar reinforces the content and vice versa. Order matters, memorial matters. And by the way, just as a relevant aside, a nation's history does this too. To to affirm a nation's history is to affirm its collective identity. And to destroy the history of a nation is to destroy a people's collective identity. This is widely known and undisputed. So memorials matter. This Memorial Day, a truer Memorial Day than even our own, as important of a message as it conveys in our United States calendar, this Memorial Day pointed to the greatest sacrifice. And so it was to be remembered always because that sacrifice was to be remembered always. And holiness is to be a pursuit within these memorials. In other words, it's not just a bare and dry memorial. We are to be pursuing holiness. We must pursue holy living. Faith produces works. On the Lord's Day, when we come here, our regular work stops, and we come here together, to, and we, we observe what we're supposed to observe with regard to the resurrection of Christ. They, then, 
were to observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in perpetuity. Now, we do not. The Passover liturgy gave way to the Lord's Day worship in the Passover lamb. In his sermon on this text, Jim Hamilton expressed it like this. In the same way that you have to be circumcised to partake of the Passover, you have to be born again to partake of the Lord's Supper. In the New Testament, Colossians 2 does not equate circumcision with baptism, but with the new birth. All those that are, have experienced the new birth should therefore partake of the Lord's Supper. Circumcision is not paralleled by baptism, but by the new birth, and so in the same way circumcised people can only take the Passover, so born-again people should be the ones that take the Lord's Supper, because we have inside received the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 describes this, and that they were baptized into a cloud and into the sea, and we were all circumcised by baptism is not what Paul says. He parallels instead baptism with the crossing of the Red Sea and being led by a pillar of fire and a cloud, not with the experience of circumcision itself. In Exodus 12, 16, our text for today, we see our forefathers of the faith recognizing their assembly as to be holy. On the first day, you shall have a holy assembly, Exodus 12, 16. So our gathering, too, by parallel, is to be an assembly of persons pursuing holiness over worldliness. And this is a pursuit we need every single week because we recline back into our sin and into our holiness and our wanting to be into the Egypt of this world instead of looking forward to the kingdom come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What aspect of holiness is God calling you to pursue as a result of today's gathering? Where specifically have you sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? And how might you confess that sin of the Lord today and experience His assurance of pardon because of Christ? We need to say something about the leaven within this third and final point as far as this remembering always, this memorial. It's very important. Because the leaven is a theme that is not just in Exodus chapter 12. It's a theme that's carried forward in the New Testament. Leaven became synonymous with sin. Leaven is the element that causes bread to rise. If you've ever done friendship bread, you might know something about this. Like of you children, have you ever had sourdough bread or shared bread? Every now and then you restart the starter. My mom used to do this. It was fun. We enjoyed eating bread. But with, without the leavening agent in bread, bread stays flat. And if you don't have time to do this, then you wind up with a bread that's more like a cracker than a bread if you don't have time for leaven and for it to rise. That speedy exit in the deliverance of the first Passover became a metaphor for a different concern. And that's what's being spoken about, written about in verses 14 to 20. Sin becomes synonymous with leaven. Leaven becomes synonymous with sin. In Exodus 12, the text says that if future worshipers act flippantly toward the worship of God, if they didn't get the temptation of the leaven out of their houses, if the reminders didn't serve their purpose to remind them of a faith that was real and in them differently if they flippantly ate leavened bread during the week of the feast of the unleavened bread there were consequences and what were the consequences well immediately in our text we see twice today once in verse 15 and once in verse 19 that person shall be cut off from the congregation of israel he said for some sourdough bread 
Like, what is that about? You know, I mean, that's, that's the, but, it, but it's not just, it's for that, it's not that. It's not just the style of the bread. It's that that was to symbolize to them God's special sacrifice. It was to symbolize to them in perpetuity an event that describes something of the character of God and of his knownness for them personally. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks up on this use of language in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The context of 1 Corinthians 5 is gross immorality being tolerated by the members of the church at Corinth 20 years or so after Jesus' ascension into heaven. They were tolerating a characteristically known unrepentant sexual sinner and continuing to recognize this person and, and probably persons like this person as a member in good standing with their local church congregation and continuing to allow this person to partake of the Lord's Supper with what seemed like impunity. And in that context, the Apostle Paul recapitulates Exodus chapter 12 about leaven and writes the following authoritative instructions. Hear the word of the Lord congregation. When you are assembled, and they are to be assembled, we are to assemble every Lord's Day, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to, to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church, inside the congregation, inside the covenant community, whom you are to pass judgment on, whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, what we get from this text is what you do privately matters. Faith is personal, but it's never private. The assembly has power when we're gathered in Jesus' name. The purpose of church discipline is so that that person's spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. In other words, if we ignore the leaven of blatant, unrepentant, consistent sin in a person's life and we know what's going on, it condemns the sinner by preventing them from calls to repentance and faith. In other words, we're being facey with them. If we ignore the leaven, it works through the whole congregation too. So sin spreads. The judgment is to begin in the household of God, but so that we bear witness to the watching world of what a pure church witness looks like in the pursuit of a pure church witness. So biblical church discipline is a seemingly awkward design to love the sinner that's sinning, to love the church that it doesn't spread in it more, the leaven does not, and to love the world. And it is a metaphor put to practical application by the apostles and is drawn directly from Exodus chapter 12. 
A Presbyterian pastor, Ligon Duncan, said this of Baptists about 1 Corinthians 5. He said, Church discipline is something that is designed, of course, to protect the purity of the body of Christ, but it's also designed to be a warning and a protection to the hearts of men. The Apostle Paul, when he speaks of church discipline being applied in 1 Corinthians, sees it as a way in which a brother might be won back from the wiles of Satan. The Baptists last century, he wrote, as they wrote manuals of church discipline for their congregations, for their churches, had beautiful phrases in this regard. When they had gone through the various steps of church discipline and had been unable to win a brother back, they said this, before the congregation, the charges were read and the brother was put out of the fellowship, and they would say this at the end of the ceremony, we will cease to call him brother and now call him friend. We will cease to call him brother and now call him friend. So maybe be careful with how we use the word brother and be intentional with using the word friend. This was him saying of us, and this is in our history, to be sure. In other words, we no longer considered this person a brother in Christ, but this was not an act of spite or meanness or vengeance. It was He was to be considered a friend who might be won back into the brotherhood, and so the cutting off of the new covenant always has in view a restoration, a restoring of the offended party. And when we circumvent this process, we intimate that we know better than God how to do God's work. And that's not what we should do. This, remind, this passage reminds us again that we ought to come before the Lord, realizing His grace, well prepared and consecrated and focused. It reminds us that God's redemptive work is the precursor to all of our worship. We cannot worship God apart from the redemption initiative that He has taken for us. And it's an initiative that He planned from the foundations of the world. Had He not redeemed us, we would not be able to come into His house and worship Him. Exactly what you're doing today is enabled by God Himself. And so we see, even in the ordinance of the feast, God weaves in what He has done to redeem and deliver His people, and that is cause for and the ground for their worship. So we remember the Lord this day and every time that we gather. We pursue holiness, even when, obviously, the point of church discipline is to bring the brother back. It is practiced that we might preserve the holiness of the body as well, and that our little ones especially would not think that that behavior is what it looks like to follow Christ. I have to tell you today, you got to put on thicker skin in following Christ. It's never been the easy road. It's always been the road less traveled by that's made the difference. But it makes all the difference. What do we need today? Not a smug reenactment of kicking people out of the church, but a tear-filled enactment of following Christ. And on that rare occasion when a person wants to continue to profess Christ but take no counsel from the Word of God, then that person must be told the truth in a manner that is as thick to that person as they are being thick to Christ. And that is, we see no evidence of your profession because of this. And you must repent of this before you come back to the brotherhood. So I will call you friend, but I will not call you brother. And to do that together is a powerful witness to the world. They are watching. I can only imagine that one of the reasons that the mixed multitude traveled out with the Israelites, which meant other nations, I can only imagine the reason they traveled in the Exodus is they probably watched and saw the atoning blood sacrifice that was offered and the way that God passed over the Israelites and did not pass over the Egyptians. Far from bitter, they chose to follow the Lord of the Passover, which, as we've saw, seen, 
First Corinthians 5, 7 says, is Christ. Cleanse the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are in leaven for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Who is our Passover lamb once for all delivered? Christ. Christ is whom? He's the Passover lamb. What did the Passover point to? What did the memorial of the Passover point to? It, passed, it pointed to the finished work of Christ on the cross on our behalf and our ongoing commemoration for it. And Hebrews tells us this in no uncertain terms. Consider Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 to 15. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. So we sing, Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9.22 Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Yeah, we've seen that. <laughs> and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But whose blood? I mean, why don't we celebrate the Passover as such anymore? Because Christ is our Passover lamb. We have a sense of the unfolding plan of God in the Bible. We read it with all of its texture, with all of its hills and valleys. And we find, like John the Baptist said, and as is recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, the next day when he saw Jesus come, coming toward him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Christ. That's right. Christ came as a specific substitute sacrifice. He came at a specific time, and He is to be remembered always and forever by us, His people. Every Sunday is like a, a little Easter, to use the nomenclature of the culture. Every Sunday we gather for worship in person. It's, it's like a little Easter. It's a, it's a resurrection Sunday all over again, because on the first day of the week, who rose from the dead? Christ. What is Christ? He is our Passover lamb. And while the Passover was an annual event that melded into the Feast of Unleavened Bread in their time over three millennia ago, it pointed to a once-for-all event to be remembered every single Sunday. And so our faith guides us to be weekly in our worship, and God is good to us in it. I wonder if you've never trusted Christ as your Passover lamb. I wonder if you've meandered through life making excuses with false humility, and you've never trusted Christ to provide the atoning sacrifice specifically for you. It was appointed a time for Him to die for you, and should you receive Him, it is appointed for a time for Him to come again and to claim you as His own. The day when your salvation will come to complete fruition. Won't you trust Christ today? Won't you put your faith in Him today? I don't want you to repeat after me a prayer I don't need you to walk to some fancy corner of the church. I just need you to receive Christ today right where you are and tell somebody about it so we can get you involved in the fellowship of the saints. That's it. Just trust Christ. He is enough. He is your Passover lamb. He is worthy, and he's welcoming you in. Behold, lamb of God. Let's pray.